It's the episode we've teased for oh so long. In episode 99 of the Nerd Byword, Dave and I will be traveling at warp 9 to head home. Home to Deep Space Nine. So grab your rock to Gino and meet us at Quarks, because the Byword begins now. Welcome, friends and comrades, to Terok Nor, I mean the Nerd by Word, the only podcast that truly understands the will of the prophets. I'm Chris, here with my Joop Dave, and we are here to provide a comprehensive look back at the glory and honor that is Star Trek Deep Space Nine. But before we gush about our faves, it's time again uh, for... And Dave, you just had to bring on the depression. Well, I don't know what else to do, man. Uh, it's going to be such a good, positive episode. I have to bring a little bit of negativity to the table. Uh, so my nerd news story this week is simply that Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse Part 1 has been delayed to 2023. Now, this is, of course, uh, the follow-up to Into the Spider-Verse. Uh, once again, uh, we'll focus on Miles Morales. Um was originally announced actually to come out on uh, in April of 2022, uh, then got pushed back to October 2022, and now officially pushed back all the way to June 2nd, 2023. Now, this is obviously a really tough one for uh, nerds and Spider-Man fans, uh, generally speaking, uh, because uh, the first movie in the series, Into the Spider-Verse, was so very well received. Uh, for its story, for its depiction of these characters, for its uh, innovative animation. Uh, there was a lot of good stuff going on here, and obviously the fans are eager to see more. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, there's this uh, famous, maybe apocryphal quote from Shigeru Miyamoto about video games, that a delayed video game will be eventually good, but a quickly released video game will be bad forever. Um, so yeah. maybe this is just one of those things where we're just going to have to be a little patient, uh, to make sure that they get the animation hammered out and get to achieve all the things they want to with the sequel rather than rushing it out to meet some kind of, you know, arbitrary release date. So, uh, I'm, I'm kind of positive about this. Yeah. Uh, I, I choose to remain patient and, and hope that, you know, this is ultimately for the best and that we're going to get a real banger of a sequel because Into the Spider-Verse is up there among some of my favorite animated movies ever. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I I am I would probably list it as my favorite superhero movie, period. Um, I think it's just really... I, I was kind of apprehensive when they announced like a sequel because it's it's really tough to, to match the meaningful nature of everything that into the spider verse was um you know on so many different levels i could talk about an entire podcast episode on why i love that movie but I, I i'm right there with you um although it is disappointing at the same time i'd much rather be patient and get the best possible um film that we have rather than rushing into something that you know is is something we have such high expectations for yeah, I totally agree with that. 
So what's your news story this week, Chris? What have you got? Uh, well, over the past few years, I felt like a loony street prophet extolling the achievements of the Star Wars animated series of Clone Wars and Rebels, but it seems as though they've just received a rather important endorsement. In preparation for returning to the role of Darth Vader in the upcoming Disney Plus series Obi-Wan Kenobi, Hayden Christensen uh, told Entertainment Weekly that he binged both Clone Wars and Rebels. He said, quote, it was interesting. They did a lot with these characters in those shows, and they did further explore the relationship. There was interesting stuff there to learn about. It was fun getting back, uh, getting to go back and reimmerse yourself in this world and just continue to grow and become more and more vast. That that just continues to grow and become more and more vast. Um, Obi-Wan actor Ewan McGregor revealed that he also did his homework uh, watching the entire nine film Skywalker saga, including his first viewing of the prequel trilogy in which he starred as Kenobi since their initial theatrical release. Of the experience, he said, quote, it was interesting to watch our films because I hadn't seen them since they came out, not at all. So it was cool to see uh, and interesting to watch them and enjoy them without all of the noise that was around them when they came out. Uh, McGregor also said that he began reading science fiction novels from Scottish writer Ian M. Banks, something that he did not do the first go-round to fully immerse himself in preparation to head back to outer space. Now, Dave, we've talked about this uh, quite a bit on this show, but I can't express enough how excited I am to see these two return to the roles with a seemingly solid creative team behind the scenes. Uh, Deborah Chow is the director for the entire series, if I understand correctly, and her episode of of The Mandalorian Season 1, Episode 3 was an instant favorite. What are your thoughts? Well, I think, you know, anytime that the animated series from the Star Wars universe gets some props is obviously a really good thing. Uh, those are some of the um, very best that Star Wars, I think, has had to offer over the years, storytelling-wise. Um, <clears throat> I think it's arguable that the uh, the Clone Wars cartoon, in a lot of ways, redeemed the prequel era a little bit, <laughs> considering that the prequels themselves are of questionable quality and, and make some, some rather poor creative decisions. Um, and we have, of course documented our problems with those movies and how it would fix them in the past shout out to our archive you guys should check those episodes out they're super um and so uh seeing now that uh, actors are looking back at the character portrayals of the prequel era characters in those cartoons in order to prep for more live action content i think is an absolutely uh, ingenious and surprising thing but on second thought, also absolutely essential. And if you if you think about how many hours of content, for example, focused on um, Anakin Skywalker is in animation versus how much is in live action, it is arguable that the animated version of that character is much more definite th- than the live action one. And so seeing the live action actor draw on that portrayal and, and learn sort of the, the ropes of how that character has been portrayed outside of his own performance is, is a very, very, very smart move and gives me much hope for what we're going to get in the Obi-Wan Kenobi series, Chris. And I neglected to mention, um, but I'm very excited about, uh, Hayden Christensen is also set to appear in the upcoming Ahsoka series. So that will be very interesting, um, something I'm very excited about with my all-time favorite character in star wars yeah absolutely man all right that wraps up nerd news um stick around after this our first break we are talking all about star trek deep space nine all right welcome back to this week's byword 
And this has been an episode that was in the works since the early episodes of of this show. Um, and I finally gave myself a deadline to watch the final seasons of Star Trek Deep Space Nine because I was trying to savor it. Um, but in a two-week period since I gave myself that deadline, I binged the season six and seven. So it was... It was hot and heavy there at the end, but we are going to go through a couple of categories as just like an introspective of, of why this show is so important. And it's really interesting because we have very different experiences with this. I just finished watching the show for the first time. Dave has watched it uh, probably three or four times, Dave, you would say? Yeah, I think uh, three times straight through and then a fourth time I just kind of jumped around and watched specific episodes. So we have several different categories, similar to our awards show that we will have once again with episode 104, The Nerdies, um, but just several, uh, a couple things, and then we also have some uh, listener-submitted questions that we'll get to as well. So the first question, or first category, um, I thought was very important to start off with, um, because why are we having... Uh, an entire episode dedicated to a show that wrapped up, you know, nearly uh, more than 20 years ago. Um, so what is DS9's secret sauce, Dave? I hope you don't mind if I um, kind of preface my secret sauce here uh, for a second. Um, so, so so, my relationship with Star Trek is, is an odd one. Um, when I was a kid, I predominantly was exposed through, uh, to Star Trek through the original series reruns. Uh, obviously, I was living uh, in Germany at the time, and so I got to watch it in glorious German dub. Um, however, I had a real affinity for that sort of swashbuckling adventure thing that the series had going on. It reminded me of you know stuff that I enjoyed otherwise, you know, movies like Indiana Jones, for example, and and Kirk as this sort of swashbuckling, take my shirt off and fight a Gorn kind of character. <laughs> appealed to me as a kid. And so um, I had a friend who uh, was huge into the next generation um, and got me to watch a couple of episodes. And I never quite connected um, with the characters as well on that show. And I know there's a huge number of Next Generation fans who are booing me right now. But uh, everything was just a little too clean and a little too perfect. and, And nobody got into like you know, character conflicts and everybody was always getting along. And it was, it was very sort of filed down drama to me, uh, even as a kid. And so I didn't, I didn't gravitate towards that. And, you know, plus there was that, that swashbuckling element was missing a little bit. I mean, you got a little bit of, you know, hairy chested shirtless Riker every once in a while, but (laughs) no Gorn inside is what I'm saying. So for the most part, my, my sort of thing was, um, was the original series. And then, you know, there was this really big brouhaha when um, when Voyager premiered. I completely missed the, pre- the premiering of Deep Space Nine. I know it was briefly advertised as like an outgrowth of the next generation. And, you know, Patrick Stewart famously was like there uh, for the trailer. Um, I mean, for the pilot. And so uh, I, I kind of saw it as sort of an outgrowth of the next generation and not very interested. And it completely passed me by. And then Voyager came along and this was a huge brouhaha. Um, I, all the advertising was right in my face. And so I sat down and I watched Voyager and I kind of, in Voyager, I guess I liked sort of the, the, the grittiness a little bit in the earlier seasons of, hey, they're really far away from home. They don't have the support system of the Federation. Um, you know, this, this could be something for me. 
And then as the series progressed, it kind of just became more and more what I didn't like about the next generation, you know, <clears throat> and that's that there were no, no, no consequences of anything that happened. You know, they go through this horrible thing and something bad happens. And then the next episode, everything's fine again. You know, the ship gets horribly damaged. And then the next episode, everything's fine again. And I just want to know where they're getting all their Federation standard supplies from you know, <laughs> to repair the ship every episode. So my relationship with Star Trek always was kind of like they got it best the first time around in the original series and everything else is just kind of like weak sauce to me. And never really checked out Deep Space Nine until years later uh, after I had already moved uh, from Germany to the United States. And so in, in sheer boredom and being, you know, badgered by people who keep saying that Deep Space Nine is a masterpiece and I, I should give it an honest to God chance even if I didn't, you know, really connect with the next generation. So I sit down and I watch this sucker. And, and here's my answer to your question now, Chris. The, the secret sauce, the secret to deep, deep Space Nine's success is that it was a serialized story at a time when there was no real serialized storytelling in Star Trek and really hardly any serialized storytelling on television. It, it was a pioneer, I think, in a lot of ways in that regard. And I don't think you get something like like Lost, you know, this highly serialized story w without something like Deep Space Nine first. Now, and don't get me wrong, I mean, it still had these standalone episodes. Right. But even standalone episodes very often had consequences that carried on, you know, into other episodes. If you had a standalone episode where two characters got into conflict and that by the end of the episode, they really didn't get along with each other, then you're going to feel that for the next few episodes in their interactions. These things did not go ignored and there was no giant reset button. And what you automatically get there is, you know, stakes. The other thing I think that is just generally um, an outgrowth of serialized storytelling is that you get something in Deep Space Nine that you also don't get in other Star Trek shows, and that is that the characters change, grow, and develop. You know, if you hit the giant reset button at the end of every episode, then there is no real forward momentum and character progression. All the characters essentially become archetypes. The characters remain pretty static and, and very similar to what you see, you know, in the pilot of the series. But if you compare the characters in the pilot of Deep Space Nine to the finale of Deep Space Nine. It is absolutely incredible how these, how these characters have grown and, and developed and changed over the course because of the, the events that we witnessed in, in the story. So I know I'm singing the praises here of serialized storytelling, um, even though that's much more common these days with streaming and binging and all that. Standalone has sort of become... Um, much rarer uh, this generation. But man, Deep Space Nine was serialized storytelling done right. And you might remember I, I re nerd commended some, some you know, behind-the-scenes oral histories of, you know, the entire Star Trek franchise across two volumes. And the section that interested me the most is how in the world did they pull off this, you know, serialized nature of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Um, and the short answer is it was a constant push and pull between what the studio wanted and what the creators wanted. Um, and so, you know, at the beginning, they were giving a lot more standalone episodes, but they kind of kept sneaking in that serialized stuff, even though, because the show was a syndicated show, um, the studio really didn't want that. 
And basically, by the time Voyager launched, everybody was just pointing at Voyager as the flagship series of Star Trek. And they kind of left Deep Space Nine to do whatever it wanted to, which is why it became even more serialized in later seasons. Um, it was a real struggle to pull this thing off. But it, it just makes it the best Star Trek series, period. Because you really get to feel for these characters. You get to care about the characters, the main cast, and even the side characters. There is real growth and development here. And so even though I adore the original series for what it was, I think the best thing to come out of Star Trek by far is Deep Space Nine. Because of exactly that, serialized storytelling and how it allows us to see these characters grow and change, Chris. Yeah, and and I'm going to go ahead and tie that into my answer because it's very very similar. And I because for me <clears throat> as as you know, a person who really looks for characters and relationships and the people behind uh the people that you're writing about, you know, in in comics and I've detailed this before. I don't art is a beautiful thing and it's wonderful, but I I'm much more interested in like the character work and what they do. So visual aesthetics, uh, I, I, I go for the heart. I'm a, I'm a big sap like that. And and what stands out for me, and uh, as funny as you could say that this is recency bias in a show that's wrapped up, you know, over 22 years ago, um, this is probably, if not the, one of my favorite pieces of entertainment media because of the characters and their stories, their trajectories, um, not to mention the acting is out of this world. Um, and for me, uh, you, and you, and you nailed it is, is look at someone like Nog who goes from being, um, this annoying little kid who's, um, up to these shenanigans and pranks on the promenade, getting busted by Odo to joining Starfleet, becoming an ensign. And then I think he's promoted again by series end. Um, and so that's fascinating. You look at one of my favorite characters, Rom, who goes from just being his brother's lackey at the bar to, you know, becoming an engineer to eventually becoming the Grand Nagus. Like, it's such a beautiful trajectory and storytelling um, job of storytelling for so many of these characters that I truly feel like these are members of my own family. Like I grew to love these characters so much in seven seasons that, you know, at the end of the finale, like I'm still kind of recuperating, I guess, emotionally. And it's been a week since I watched the finale, but yeah. So I think the strength for me is the characters and, and the stories that are told and we can watch these people's journeys. I mean, look at look at Kira. You go, you know, from a revolutionary. That's like that's like an unheard of thing to be a revolutionary fighter, a rebel, and now thrust into this government position into where she's kind of got to play both sides. And the, you know, her character's growth and you know her relationship and romance with Odo. And it's just wild. I, I mean, I could I could go on forever. Uh, but but for me. It's watching these people grow and develop. It's just like watching your own family grow with you over seven years. See, that you're exactly right there. And I, and I want to point out, too, um, how important the extended family became to Deep Space Nine. I mean, if you look at, like, the named cast... Um, in, in the opening, you know, like the, the main star, so to speak, there were so many characters that are not listed there that became so important to 
the fabric of the show. I don't think uh, that Nog's portrayal, for example, was ever technically in the main cast, if I remember correctly. And still such an important character. You know, Rom the same way, Garrick the same way. I mean, I cannot imagine this show without Garrick of all people. Um, a simple tailor. Yeah, a simple tailor, but but a very interesting tailor at that. Uh, but the, the point is that this is something that you cannot and will not really ever get uh, in, in, you know, highly, um, you know, reset button oriented standalone tales is that, you know, the, the background characters can capture you as well, like, like they do in Deep Space Nine. Okay, Dave, I I I uh I filled out the sheet first, but I said feel free to make the same choices because we have to, you know, be true to ourselves. And I think it would actually expound on our conversation if we have some of the same choices. And this is exactly that. Who is our favorite character, Dave? Uh Julian Bashir, obviously. Um Look, uh, in, in a show laced with absolutely fantastic characters, I think Julian rises to the top, it, it, except for one little thing, and I'll mention this here in a moment. But Julian also goes through some of the most radical changes in the show as well, I think, as far as character growth is concerned. You know, here is this 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 arrogant dude that think he's, thinks he's going to come to the frontier and he's going to be like some kind of hero doctor. You know, he's absolutely full of himself and at the same time incredibly naive. He's book smart but has absolutely zero street smarts, basically. <laughs> and, and, and this guy uh, basically becomes all the things that he hoped he would be by completely transforming himself, by learning from his environment, by learning from the experiences around him, by going through some pretty harrowing crap himself. And and I absolutely adore that about him. Now, I do want to point out uh, the elephant in the room when it comes to Julian, and that's the whole, you know, genetically modified stuff. That is by far my least favorite thing about the character. Um based on some of the things I've read from the oral history uh, books. It's also uh, one of uh, the portrayer's absolutely least favorite things that they've done to the character. There seemed to be a push behind the scenes to try to have some kind of um, Spock-like character that can, you know, do quick math calculations in his head and spout out odds and stuff. And um, it just does not fit the character arc of Julian Bashir. I mean, you, I, I don't think you can reconcile that twist with what we see in the early seasons of the show. And I think if we're saying that that was all a put on and he was just pretending that that kind of negates this really interesting character growth. So to me, that is an aspect that I absolutely choose to ignore. What I don't choose to ignore, however, is the fantastic and interesting relationships that he builds. Um, you know, if you look at relationships, it seems like Julian is always, um, always part of a, of a relationship mix with the characters. That's interesting. You know, his the disdain that O'Brien felt for him that would eventually grow to friendship. The flirtatious thing that he has going on, you know, with Jitsia Dax and how she's constantly just trying to let him down easy, and at the same time still enjoys the flirting that that he tries to do. You know, the whole thing with Garrick, of which I shall speak more later. Um, like every relationship that he is in is interesting. Even his uh, his dynamic with with uh, with Kira early on, she, I think she was going to strangle him at one point. I mean, it's just which is was, interesting. Which is interesting because Nana Visitor and Alexander Siddig were married for a short period of time. 
Yeah, absolutely. But maybe, yeah. Um, there's some strangling involved in some of those situations <laughs> too, I hear. Um, <laughs> so anyways, the, po- the point is that I think Julian made, uh, as a character, made the show uh, much richer with every single relationship that he was in. Um, so, so for that alone, I adore the character. What, what's, what is it that you love about Julian Bashir, Chris? See, I'm, I'm a sucker for like thespianism, like just out, like, like, just like the clear the stage. Let me, let me work. Let me, let me cook. Um, and so that's why I love, uh, you know, Alexander Siddig's portrayal of this character and um, Avery Brooks's portrayal of Benjamin Sisko. It's like I love it when. Like the, you can almost see like the spotlight going on them and they're like, just watch me work. So I love, I'm a sucker for that. And, and I'm, I actually did not hate the whole genetically modified thing. I thought it gave an interesting, if, 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 if Siddig was opposed to it, he did the most with the crap sandwich that he was given, if that's the case, because the, the story arcs with the other genetically modified characters and he really went to bat for them and really, you know, um, in some ways stepped in it when they, they, the whole dominion war and the surrender thing, that was a bit of a mess, but like he was trying. And um, I also admire the fact that I would, I would not be surprised to, if he were to be like a similar personality type, the INFJ to me is like the person who really is an idealist and believes what their, their belief system and, and stands up for it and fights for it because um, particularly interesting for me is it's, it's crazy how this show ends on such a high note. Like, you know, and sometimes later seasons you see it really f- fall off and, and, and do go into a tailspin, but like they keep their foot on the gas in season six and seven, which is really crazy. Um, but, but I say that because of the final episodes, uh, where he's going up against section 31 and that whole scenario. And he's going up right up to Admiral Ross, who becomes a, a very prominent figure in the latter seasons of like this big to do and this really important person with, um, you know, Federation command and, and, and he's, he speaks truth to power. And, and so just someone who stands up for what they believe in. Um, and, and I also see like the, the genetic modification thing is something that was out of his control, but now he has to deal with it. Um, you know, so both from an actor's perspective and then from a character's perspective, he didn't choose that it was thrust upon him, but he's trying to make, uh, you know, chicken salad out of chicken you know what so um i just i just love that idealist character the 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 don quixote if you will of of star trek so i i love julian uh followed closely by rom shout out to my boy rom i think uh i can agree with most of that i think the thing that uh alexander siddick seemed to say and i'm really paraphrasing here because it's been a few months since i read the book was that he he absolutely hated the science gobbledygook that they started wanting him to spout out because he's supposed to be super intelligent. He said there was nothing acting-wise to sink his teeth into there. And so he just, every time they tried to write those lines for him, he would just have the absolute worst delivery ever, and then they would decide to cut it because it wasn't working. So he, he kind of like sabotaged those those things a little bit to try to make sure that they would stop writing that kind of stuff for him, which, you know, kudos because we ended up getting, you know, better stuff using the, you know, genetic enhanced uh, storyline than what we probably would have gotten if he would have just like thrown himself into reading those lines as at his best ability, I think. 
Which which reminds me of uh, a similar situation that was probably even more influential is the uh, famous first on-screen interracial kiss between uh, you know Captain Kirk and Lieutenant Uhura, and if memory serves, that Shatner um, uh, intentionally screwed up the shots where it wasn't the case, and they like looked cross-eyed into the screen or uh, into the camera, so they had to use the kiss shots. So we love that. No. Yeah, yeah, big fan of that. All right, Dave. So let's get a little romantical. And you hinted at yours before, but who's your favorite couple? I just, I, I'm only being semi facetious here, but I think uh, Julian Bashir and Garrick. There is definitely some chemistry there. Absolutely. Um, it's it's absolutely fascinating to me how that whole situation was played, um, especially from Garrick's end. It always felt even from their first meeting on, it wasn't just like, you know, the spy trying to like gather information and, and wooing a potential source of information in the naive Julian Bashir. There was, there was something flirtatious there, particularly from Garrick's end. Um, and, and I absolutely love that uh, as part of that portrayal, especially considering how, you know, they, they kind of grew not past the cat and mouse of the whole spy game, but they were able to kind of incorporate that into, you know, what I would call a genuine friendship. Again, it's just one of those, those great Julian Bashir relationships in, in deep space nine. Um, so, so, you know, semi seriously, my favorite couple by far, I would say is, is, you know, Julian and Garrick, just because their interactions, the flirtation in that, specifically coming from Garrick towards Julian, was so much fun to watch. And just how he was always able to kind of rattle Julian's cage a little bit yes. and then just walk off. I absolutely adored that. Yeah. And speaking of masterful acting performances, you know, Andrew Robinson as Garrick is probably one of my favorite acting performances in all of Star Trek. Uh, it's just like he's so good at playing that role. It's just mind blowing. But yeah, it's, I'm totally right there with it. And, and, um, I love watching their relationship develop into Julian finally like catching wise and like he's kind of getting sick of his crap and so like i, I think of that episode uh, i think it's called our man bashir when they're in that hollow suite james bond program and they're stuck in there yes so that's a fun one for sure yeah absolutely how, how about you who's your favorite couple chris uh, you know i had to give rom some love and and his relationship with lita is just absolutely adorable and and just like from two different worlds and it's just so cool to see like the, the cultural exchange and like how those two cultures that are seemingly so disparate and, and incompatible um, and just seeing the, the growth, you know, Ferengi culture is, uh, is so much at the forefront of this series than we ever saw before. You know, they showed up in the next generation, but like we really got it, a spotlight put on it. Uh, with this series and so seeing you know making those concessions because of the person you love i think of you know the episodes where uh, their wedding was put off because of you know all these shenanigans and uh, you know and and so overcoming those complications and really making compromises in the name of love is is really cool to see and just they're so pure and they just have that that on-screen chemistry between the two actors and i just absolutely love that whole family dynamic with nog as well and being proud of his dad and i really just love rom so much 
I totally agree with that. I think there again, you see just the absolute um, richness of the 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 supporting characters in the show that you know a couple a couple like Ram and Lita of all people could could end up being such an absolute favorite that would have not happened in many other shows I don't think so I I adore that about Deep Space Nine that we can actually you know go there with these side characters I do want to give a special shout out to another couple that I think is really interesting um, and, and that is um, Odo and Kira. Uh, even though the time period they spent together was probably not the most interesting, um, I, I think the the yearning of Odo to to try to express himself to Kira and let her know how he feels was some of the finest acting on that show. And I think this is something that everybody can relate to. You know, this unrequited love, the the the, the problem of trying to express you know, your love and putting yourself out there in, in a situation that may not go the way you hope when you do finally open your mouth. That's And I, I would say that that particular performance, uh, the whole lead up to their couple, coupledom, if you will, is uh, almost more uh, dramatic and more satisfying than the actual coupledom itself. I think seeing that yearning from Oda was always, always good uh storytelling and and fascinating drama for the show i think yeah absolutely and and it's just like for me my second place is um cisco and cassidy yates i just love how that really just played off of that you know um this straight man of cisco and i'll talk about that in just a moment but like where he's willing to compromise of, of someone that he cares for and loves and just the, and, and that wasn't a super, like there wasn't a whole lot of content, you know, is, is similar. It, it developed in like a previous season, but, um, but it also, um, you know, was, it was, was like bang for buck as far as the scenes that they had together. And a lot was happening right there towards the final arc too. So I loved, I loved Cassidy Yates, you know, being this almost like a Han Solo type character is like this smuggler. And then, you know, being with the main protagonist of the series and, you know, him being, you know, being willing to overlook some of those things. I, I absolutely love that. Yeah, yeah, I can echo that. I really like that relationship too. I always felt like we didn't get enough of those two together. But uh, what, what was there was definitely quality. Also, shouts to Vic Fontaine for being uh, an immaculate uh, matchmaker. I love those. I love every ep- episode that Vic Fontaine was in, particularly the one where he takes Odo like under his wing and helps him like really express his feelings to Kira. That was a beautiful, beautiful episode. Absolutely, man. We are going to now transition to favorite single episode. And Dave, your pick we talked about a little bit in a previous episode, but let's let's dive right back into it. Yeah, I don't I don't want to dig too much at this yet again. Um, but the visitor um is probably the greatest hour of Deep Space Nine period. Come at me, Chris. Um it just it hits all the right emotional notes. It it, it basically uses what I think is the most central relationship of the series, and that is the father-son relationship between Cisco and Jake. Um, and uh, really digs into it and explores that. And the basic premise is that there's, you know, as usual in Star Trek, some kind of accident. It looks like 
Benjamin Sisko is dead. We see, you know, characters age and progress. And then suddenly he shows up again and disappears again and shows up again and disappears again at different points in his son's life. And his son eventually figures out that he's kind of become unstuck in time and, and is trying to, to, you know, bring him back and attempts to do that fail until, you know, the ending when he realizes that the two are connected and that, uh, Benjamin Sisko will not be able to get unstuck until Jake himself dies, um, which is so so heartbreaking. And of course, you know, once Jake dies in the future, Sisko bounces back into his regular time and and gets to you know resume his life with his son. Um, just you know, you you said it yourself. You know, you're, you're kind of a guy that goes for the heart. Um, you care about the characters less so than the shiny special effects. And and that is sort of my favorite thing about science fiction anyways, is when they use the trappings of science fiction to kind of explore what it means to be human. And and this episode is just the epitome of that. It is all about th- this is a father who loves his son and a son who loves his father. And that that that, you know, that speaks to me. And it's it's probably the the one episode of Deep Space Nine that's still to this day, no matter how often I've seen it, will legitimately tear me up by the time the ending rolls around. It is it's really a heartbreaker. Um, although it has a very, you know, happy ending um in the grand scheme of things, it just that that exploration of that relationship is is just so pitch perfect. Yeah. I will say, I will say, um, that the effect that this episode has never wears out, no matter how often you watch it, and that is the hallmark of good storytelling, Chris. And and it hits and it hits different, you know, as a dad too. And I think um, yes, you know, and I almost got emotional last time I said this, but I'm going to breeze through it. But like my favorite thing about Deep Space Nine that I always go back to, and and I almost like when I look at my children now. And when he kisses Jake on the forehead, even as a grown adult, and calls him Jaco, like it, it hits me right in the heart every single time. Yeah, absolutely, man. All right, Dave, you had a runner-up as well. Hit me with that. So my runner-up is Trials and Tribulations, <laughs> for, which which may seem really odd considering how many great, wonderful, dramatic episodes there are in this show and wonderful character studies. Why in the world would I go for Trials and Tribulations? Simply put, because I love the original series. I just love it. And the idea of seeing the Deep Space Nine cast interact with the original series world is just loaded with fun. You know, from O'Brien being involved in that whole fist fight in the bar to, you know, Worf's comments about what Klingons looked like in the original series. We do not speak of it. <laughs> it's just there is there is no bad moment how how, you know, Dax gets all like nostalgic. She's like the ultimate nostalgia window. There's, oh my God, everything was so awesome in the uniform uniforms and look at the skirt and oh my God, I'm going to see Captain Kirk. And it's just the nostalgia because she lived it before and she gets to relive that part of her life. Like every character had just such great moments. And the technology, obviously, you know, the, the, the forced gump technology, if you will, of, you know, integrating new actors into these old scenes. It was so well executed. So good. And, so good. Yeah. And you have this, this great, like, this great, like, behind the scenes. It's basically the Back to the Future Part 2 
of, of Star Trek. You know, like there is the A story that we've seen, and then now we realize there's a whole B story happening in the background that we didn't know about the first time around. It absolutely, absolutely fantastic. I, I adore it, and I think it's probably one of the most pure, fun episodes in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Puts a smile on my face every time, Chris. Absolutely. So how about you? What are your favorite episodes? All right. So it, it's tough for me, um, but In the Pale Moonlight is probably one of the most lauded episodes of the series, and and for good reason. Um, it, it's so interesting of seeing this upstanding character of strong moral fiber of uh, in Benjamin Sisko, who I, I, I tweeted this out from, from the podcast account. There's no leader uh, you know, fictional or real that I would follow with more vigor than Benjamin Lafayette Cisco. Like he is far and away my favorite captain or leader or whatever title you want to give. And so seeing his morality challenged, seeing his, his ethics brought into, you know, true uh, a dilemma because he sees you know, these casualty counts and seemingly endless war with the Dominion. And so he enters this deal that he does not feel right about with Garrick. And it's just just masterful acting on both parts, um, you know, from Andrew Robinson and Avery Brooks, as always, in this role. And then you're just like, you're you're at the edge of your seat every moment with every twist and turn of this story and to the point where you know the the romulan leader is like it's a fake and you're like oh my god and like this is this is the end this is how it all ends and this is all blows up pun intended and like all this to bring in the you know bring in the romulans into the dominion war and it's just probably like a real turning point in the war that that was a necessary evil if you will and so just seeing that challenged and seeing this story played out is 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 i was i was sweating bullets the entire time i was watching it i will totally agree with that you know anything that any moment in this show that pushed cisco to get out of his um like like Cisco is one of the most deeply moral characters in Star Trek, and that's saying quite a bit. And anything that tries to push him out of that space becomes instantly one of the most dramatic things that that Deep Space Nine has to offer. So I will wholeheartedly agree with that assessment. It's a great, great episode. Now, Chris, you also have a runner up. What you got? Uh, any anything with Vic Tont- uh, anything with Vic Fontaine is magic. Um, I, I love I. I'm just such a sucker for that era, um, you know, Sinatra and all that, all that stuff. But um, so, but bada bing, bada bang is a great one. It's just like it, it, it makes a stew out of like so many beautiful ingredients. It's like, what if we take Star Trek and mix it with the Godfather and Ocean's Eleven? So, I mean, like it's a heist episode in Star Trek and just, it's just, it, it mixes so many things that I love that should not work together. But like just the from the immaculate planning phase and then it inevitably goes awry. And then like, how do you improvise on the fly with so much, uh, you know, on the line? I just absolutely love that episode. But but touching back on, on what you said about Cisco, you made something really interesting and pointed it out. And we talked about this before in the episode is I love the next generation for what it is. 
And I think what makes Deep Space Nine stand out for me and make overall the the preferential choice for me is the entire crew of Next Generation is very much leaning into the archetype uh, archetypal characters. Um, you have you know Picard is this, this upstanding moral character and no nonsense and whatever hates kids. You have, you know, Wesley as the annoying little snot. You have uh, Riker as the ladies' man. Um, you know, Counselor Troy is is that empathic connection. But they never really venture outside of those archetypes. So they're dependable and you can go to them if that's your vibe. But there's not a whole lot of growth from that. And, um, you know, so it, it was interesting that you just pointed that out and, we finally got to that in the next generation with the, um, I believe it's called family episode of Picard, where he finally falters and is shown to be more human, where he goes back to his family in France. And, and that was, it was a long way before we got there. And so seeing, you know, much more character growth in this series is, is much more the choice for me. Yeah. Uh, I, I cannot say anything else to that. That was perfectly expressed, Chris. All right, so as we round this out, the last couple of categories, um, what's your biggest surprise, Dave? You know, I, I really felt like, you know, with a story so serialized as Deep Space Nine that once the ending would roll around, it would be a definite ending. And it was not that. In fact, in a lot of ways, it felt like a new beginning. It was almost like um, one chapter ended and another began. And there was so much story left to tell. And then this just ends, you know, like <clears throat> the the stated goal, like at the beginning, uh, even when Cisco got there was like, you know, you know, Bajor needs to join the Federation. Did Bajor join the Federation? No, no, it did not. The The stated goal of the whole show was, you know, not, not fulfilled. Um, everything settled in the conflict with the Dominion, somewhat, maybe. Uh, there's peace for now, but there's potential for future conflict. Odo returns to his people. Will he ever come back? We we don't know. Right? O'Brien leaves the station. You know, will him and Julian be still able to, you know, storm the Alamo together? I mean, like, <laughs> um, I, I don't, I don't, this is all so open-ended. And it, although it, you, you know, you know, it is an ending and it feels like an ending because the, the massive changes that happen, it also feels like there's a whole nother story there. And, and so you feel maybe a slight sense of closure, sure, but you also feel a, a real sense of loss because it's over, but it's not over. And you will never get to see what these characters did moving forward or how some of these things resolve or if and when Cisco returns from, you know, the prophets. Like there's so many questions that go completely unanswered. And that really was surprising to me that they weren't, you know, willing to say, okay, we're just going to end the sucker and move on with life. You know, big last shot is a big admittance ceremony for Bajor into the Federation. Boom, done. You know, like, like they were willing to say, you know, this is like real life. Yeah. It doesn't just end. The story continues. And this is just where we decide to say goodbye to these characters. And that, that was surprising because so few, so few series are willing to do that. Uh, and, and, you know, 
it was kind of it was kind of cool um and bittersweet in a lot of ways chris yeah and i i I would lean on the side of that being a pleasant surprise is because it was a realistic ending i i think it would have felt like like uh smushing the wrong puzzle piece into the end if if we would have gotten this placid peaceful ending you know you can't it would it would have felt disingenuous to going from the end of the dominion war hundreds of millions of casualties and deaths into okay but it's all okay now and we're all happy so i th- i thought i i think that that was a fitting end as much as it hurt yeah i will agree with that all right chris how about you biggest surprise for you how have we gone this entire episode without crapping on space karen um <laughs> so <laughs> yeah i don't although it shouldn't be that big a surprise because when you have people who are religious zealots you you know that the intention behind them is not pure it is not um morally upstanding they just want to manipulate people and they're out for their own selfish gains but i still did not see the the final arc for kai win coming like this you know where she's literally sleeping with the enemy uh julia roberts no, out. <laughs> please don't never mention that again that <laughs> to, is not okay sir and, and and then to the point where she's like just like yeah um my entire life has been in service of the prophets but now i see that my path to power is through the paw race they're mortal enemies so let me just jump ship like this and then when she realizes that it is um gold ducat how do we not mention gold ducat like another masterful performance and his descent into madness was just like chef's kiss but like yeah so like that whole final arc was just mind-blowing did not see that coming followed closely by how much i love esri dax like killing off like such a beloved character in the you know in the finale of the second to last season like jadzia and they're like okay you really screwed it up season seven's gonna be terrible and then like i love esri so much like she's just this like lovable dork you know um that is just like doesn't feel like she fits and then you know watching her find her place there and you know grow her backbone up and stand up to her overprotective mom stand up to Worf and all his bullcrap love that for her so those are my two biggest surprises yeah so I will say that uh Kai Wynn's final arc was deeply satisfying for me because Space Karen finally got what was coming to her <laughs> such a such a fantastic villain um shouts to louise shouts to louise fletcher because that's a real good villain if you truly hate that person like they were a real person that's good acting man oh man so fantastic every time every time she shows up on screen i just wanted to throw like some some rotten eggs at her (laughs) or something like it's perfect acting um and yeah i mean i i have this weird thing uh and i know this is going to be almost like sacrilege where I, i almost like uh, Esri more than Jadzia, and I wished I would have been able to spend more time with that mm-hmm. character. Um, Jadzia, uh, when she was introduced to the show, had basically um, everything going for her already. Yes. You know, she had the, tra- the training with being joined with 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 you know a symbiote or whatever they're called in the Shogun. Um, it's been a few years since I've watched it. Can you tell? Yeah. Um, but she had all the training. She, you know, had all the the the, the memories. She had, you know, these the tall, good looks. And she was she was OP. She was she was OP. 
Yes. And so there's not always that far you can go with that kind of character. And, I, you know, kudos to um, the writers of Deep Space Nine to come up with some really interesting stories for her. Um, however, when Esri is introduced, she's a mess, you know? I love <laughs> like, it. So relatable. Yeah, she, so relatable. Yes. Yes. And so just seeing her kind of trying to put the pieces of her life together and trying to figure out which direction she wants to go with it and and what what her relationship with these people are that she's technically never met and at the same time are some of her best friends like that that was really really interesting and i found her to be probably the more compelling character of the two so although i love uh, jadzia a lot i think she's a great character i think that esri just her whole introduction everything was much more um gripping and interesting and i wished we would have seen more of that character all right now our final category before we head into the question segment uh, is very apropos, I feel. Dave, what is your go-to Hollow Suite program? When it comes to Star Trek Deep Space Nine, there's really only one, and that's going uh, to some baseball games. Um, that that might sound weird coming from me, given my German background. I was just uh, going to say, yeah. <laughs> I, have a, I have a mad love for baseball. Um, it's the one American sport that I instantly connected with after I came here. I really enjoy the the rhythm, the give and take. Um, it, it's and you know a lot of that I think uh, is one of the well one of many reasons why I love Ben Cisco so much. The way he describes baseball and the reasons why he loves baseball. Every time that the game comes up in the show, um, I'm just I'm just sitting there pointing and going, "That's it. That's exactly right. That is why." That is why I like baseball too. That's why that sport makes sense to me more than you know football or basketball. This is this is baseball right there. It makes sense to me, and so I, I connect with Cisco. I think uh, in part because of our, our mutual love for the sport. So if I'm gonna go on the hollow deck, I'm gonna be checking out some baseball games, man. How yeah. about you? Yeah. Um... Just, I have a special connection to baseball myself with with my grandmother, and it's one of the ways that I honor her memory is is with my baseball fandom. But another another honorable mention for best episode, and 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 if we pulled a lot of D Space Nine's fans, probably their favorite episode, and just another episode where Cisco steps in it, and then he has to recover because the way he treated Rom was absolutely horrible and then so he has to like admit that he was wrong and and make you know uh you know uh, repercussions for that so i love that episode but for me um i'm an ancient history like nerd particularly with ancient egypt we talked about it um with with moon knight and i just would love to be able to go to that period of time and you know so i love ancient history but egypt would probably be the go-to for me that makes sense. I have I have a little bit of something to say about history too, so you know I, I don't mind going to some of those places. But yeah, baseball man, baseball. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> now we did get a couple of questions, so thanks to everyone who did submit questions. First up, uh, and I don't know where we're going to go with this. It should be interesting. But our good friend Steve uh, uses they them pronouns. You can find them at Howdy Duda H O W D Y D U D A on Twitter. They ask, which is the best Wayun and which is the dirt worst, Dave? Okay, so best Wayun probably would I would say um Wayun four, which is I think the first Wayun that we meet on DS9, since he's sort of the template for what the character is. 
um, I would say let's make him the best. And as far as worst Weiyun, I'm going to go with Weiyun 7. That sucker was like a real jerk. I mean, you know, Weiyun was a, a, a sniveling little bureaucrat anyways. But um, so this is uh, from the episode Treachery, Faith, and the Great River. And so you have Weiyun 6, which is sort of the defector and is like actively trying to help Odo. And then they activate Weiyun 7, and his whole thing is, I'm going to go and I'm going to find Weiyun 6 and take him out. And while he was at it, um, basically tried to kill Odo, which is like a a huge no-no. So this guy was basically the biggest Weiyun jerk of all the Weiyuns. Um, I'm not sure which one it was, but my personal favorite is the one that they rigged up like Frankenstein's monster to distract the others uh, and was like walking into walls. That was pretty fun. Um, and then just as far as a character goes, it's it's real Ebony Maw vibes of this Weasley intermediary for, you know, the real villains. So always an interesting character masterfully portrayed by Jeffrey Combs. Yeah, Jeffrey Combs, not a single bad character in all of Star Trek them. Let's be honest. Uh, every time he pops up, he brings an interesting performance to the table. Love that guy. All right. Our good friend Lex Pendragon on Twitter uh, gives us a, a real whopper. Says, DS9's biggest criticism that I heard is that it wasn't episodic enough. I think there was backlash over the serialized nature of DS9 in that Voyager was so episodic. During a rewatch, I accidentally sorted alphabetically instead of episode order and didn't notice until halfway through the season. Today in the world <laughs> today in the world of streaming television, people are expected to sit down and watch every episode in order, but in DS9's era of broadcast television, uh, television, that was harder to do. My question is, do you think DS9 was ahead of its time in regard to that, and would it have fared better had it come out in the Paramount Plus era? Dave, you kind of tapped, uh, touched on this earlier, but let's hit it again. Yeah, so the short uh, answer is yes. Let's move on. No. Um, Yeah. Was DS9 ahead of its time? Absolutely. Did it struggle with viewers uh, because of its serialized nature? Also, absolutely. Uh, If I remember correctly, there was no specific network for it at the time. It was like, um, what were those shows called again that are just like sold off to the local markets? Basically, Uh, every, every... Yes, it was a syndicated show. Thank you. So as a syndicated show, every local market kind of determined its own, you know, um, day of the week they wanted to show it, what time of day they would show the show. Um, So there was like no uniform across the nation. You want to watch Deep Space Nine, you go to this channel and you watch it at this time and you can watch every episode in order that way. Um, And so I think that hurt the show obviously. Uh, and that's, of course, one of the reasons why the studio was so insistent that, uh, you know, episodes should be standalone. Uh, so do I think the show would fare better today? Uh, yes. Uh, in, y- yes and no. Yes, in the sense that being able to clearly watch it in the intended order without having to go hunt for it based on which city you happen to be in would probably benefit it a great deal. No, in the sense that Um, Thanks to the rise of social media, uh, fandoms, including Star Wars and Star Trek, have become extremely toxic with people being very gatekeepy and saying, that's not my Trek. And so if you have if you have standalone episodes from the original show and you have standalone episodes from the next generation and then Deep Space Nine comes along and they, you know, not only are serialized, but they also deeply play with 
themes of politics, of, of, of capitalism, of religion, all these things that were sort of brushed aside in um, particularly in the next generation, I think we would get a, a lot of hashtag not my Star Trek, um, which is a shame considering it's uh, by far the best Star Trek. Yeah, it it uh, I, I I totally agree with where, with what you're saying, and like it's it kind of lives and operates in its own unique space um, of like this cult classic that's like um, a hidden gem of the fandom, and I I don't know it's really hard to kind of imagine itself, you know, the show being anything but that I do. I do need to go and watch this documentary, what we left behind that came out a few years ago. So I think I found that whole thing on YouTube. I'm going to definitely have to go watch that. I'm with you there. I think, I think that would be a very, very uh, fulfilling watch. Uh Next question comes from our friends at the Simply Amazing Pod, all about Kurt Wagner. Uh, you can find them on Twitter at Simply AMZing Pod. Um, they ask, "I've got one recast DS9, but with X Men." Dave, I'm gonna I'm gonna color outside the lines here and let you do DC characters. Well, see, I was trying to prepare for X Men characters, and now you throw me this. Oh no no no! Loop. Okay, oh okay. If you're ready, hey, go for it. I, I, I said I tried. I couldn't okay. come up with any good equivalents. So, so, so here's my philosophy on this. You being the resident X-Men expert, I'm just going to go ahead and let you add it. Um, and if I have something to add, I will add at the end based on my not-so-considerable knowledge of the X-Men. Okay, so this is not um, an easy go because... A lot of people just like as maybe as casual X-Men fans or outsiders would see a bald leader and be like, oh, that's Charles Xavier. But I am not putting that on Ben Sisko because Charles Xavier is not the hero. He's not who we thought he was. So I'm not going to do that one. I'm just going to go. I'm, I'm just looking at the IMDb cast list as we go here. I'm going to go with um, first one that jumps out to me is is Julian Bashir is Gambit. He is that um, Lothario, like, suave guy that uh, just really thinks very highly of himself. Um, let's see if anything else jumps out. Um, here's an easy one. Um, Miles O'Brien is Forge, the techie guy who can basically fix anything and everything. Um, let's see. Um, here's, here's one that's a bit on the nose. Um, Mystique is Odo, <laughs> shapeshifter. Um, <laughs> let's see. Um, Rogue is Kira. She's a oh, bad girl. That's gone, fair. Bad girl gone good. Um, and she can kick your ass. So, um, let's see. Um, anything else that jumps out? Um, uh, Gold Ducat. Gold Ducat is um, Mr. Sinister. Just always the worst. Just always scheming. In a world like in that we have in Krakoa now, where we're redeeming villains and giving them another opportunity to like rehabilitate their image and everything, Mr. Sinister is just always going to choose the worst just for being the worst. And that's Gold Ducat. Um, Oh, here we go. Kai Wynn is Charles Xavier. Oh, <laughs> yep. that's quite a hot Yep, <laughs> yep. 
Um, yeah, that's all I got right now. Maybe something will jump out at me later. So I'll just say, um, all right, I agree with everything you just said. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Lisa, who co-hosts that same pod, um, on her personal account at the OG Nocturne, uh, asks, here's my question. What do you think Miles and Julian were really getting up to in the Hollow Suites? And why did they always pick the simulations with the most dramatic costumes? Um, I mean, obviously they were defending the Alamo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so there's a, there's a pretty good meme from, um, I think it's Parks and Rec, where it's like, this is... Um, this is my husband, Miles, and this is his boyfriend, Julian. <laughs> so another one of those, like, a lot of people claim Julian Bashir is a bisexual king. And, you know, I could see the vision because particularly, the, like, that one episode where they're stuck in, um, they're, whose brain are they stuck in towards the end? Um, and they think they're going to die inside their brain. Um, but they're like it's giving their last confessions to each other. Like that was that was like the the pivotal moment where like it was almost like on screen and confirmed. I don't remember that episode. It's been a few years since I've yeah. since I've watched a show. All right. So, any final thoughts on Deep Space Nine? We finally did it. Uh, we did it, Dave. Yeah, I'm, I'm pleased we finally got a chance to talk about this show. Um, all I really can say at this point is simply this. It's it's the best Star Trek um, by far. Uh, I, I love it. Uh, above the original show, above Next Generation, um, above Voyager, above anything that New Trek has done so far. Um, I'm just really, really, really fond of the show. I think it's the very best that science fiction has to offer. It continuously comments on the human condition, on relationships, on our relationship with each other on our relationship with faith on our relationship with uh our political leaders our economy uh even on the relationship between warriors on opposite sides of the battlefield and it has so much interesting things to say about humanity and that's really the the underlying i think purpose of science fiction is that you're commenting on who we are couched in some kind of fantastical setting as a way of making it um, more palatable for people to have a mirror held up to them, perhaps. Um, and, and that really is what makes science fiction special. And Deep Space Nine captures that so perfectly right out of the gate, even in some of its standalone episodes in season one. Um, and, and for that, I love the show and I will continue to revisit it exactly because of that reason. Yeah, I think I'm willing to even put this out there. Like this might be my favorite thing in all of science fiction even more so than star wars like it just really it's really an incredible achievement that they made you care about characters that are so different and so disparate from one another like here's one that we forgot earlier the character of damar and the you know who goes from being this alcoholic second in command to gul dukat that you would never imagine like siding with or caring about until he turns into this revolutionary leader who, you know, kind of sees the error of his ways and, you know, turns into, you know, for, for Cardassia. And that was an emotional moment when you see him die. And then Garrick 
overcome with emotion yells for Cardassia. And it's just, just a beautiful, beautiful series, masterful storytelling, masterful acting. And I'm as, as someone who does not revisit things, doesn't rewatch things, even my favorite things. Cause I don't like knowing the end of things. This one is, is really going to break that mold for me because I love it so much. Yeah, absolutely. All right. That's it for our Byword Big Talk for the week. Be sure to hit us up with your reactions uh, to that on social media at NerdByWord on Twitter and Instagram or that Nerd Dave and that Nerd Chris respectively. But when we from, return from our final break, we're going to bring you two more nerd commendations. All right, we're back for our final segment where we give you the goods known as Dave, I have no idea what you're talking about this week. Yes, sir. Dave is back giving you the weird stuff. All right, so um, let's go ahead and talk about uh, a big, bad, dirty word, emulation. Um, I'm a big fan of emulation uh, in, a, in a number of different ways. Um, obviously, video game preservation is near and dear to my heart as an aging gamer. Um, and so I think it is absolutely essential that these things get preserved, especially in an age when so many companies don't choose really to preserve their own games. Um, and older games are oftentimes not made available in some way, shape, or form to play again. Now, obviously, I would never advocate for something uh, that is illegal. Uh, so emulators themselves are not in a legal quagmire. Uh, emu uh, ROMs for emulators, however, are. Uh, if you are going to do emulation, here's a quick disclaimer. Always make sure that uh, you own the game that you plan to emulate and create your own backup, your own ROM from the game that you own and then load it into your emulator. It is obviously a game that you own then and as such, all good. Um, maybe. We're not sure because emulation is a legal gray zone. However, what I would like to talk about is a nice piece of software that is all about organizing um, and beautifying your game collection. Uh, and it is called Launchbox. Launchbox was originally created as a front-end software for DOSBox, uh, an emulator that allows you to play old DOS video games. But since then has grown into a substantially featured bit of software. I have uh, run Launchbox for quite a while on my PC as a way of even like organizing my PC games because it has a function to do that. Um, Basically, it uh, organizes all of your games into various categories based on, you know, systems such as PC or, you know, various emulators, uh, whether they're DOS games and so on and so forth. Uh, this program does not, in fact, uh, emulate those games or run any games natively. All it does is it's literally a front end for uh, your games collection. It organize, organizes them all nice and neatly. It's connected to various databases, so it can download like cover art, screenshots, descriptions, you know, metadata, basic information like what year the game was released and all that. Um, and it allows you to quickly and effectively browse um, you know, all of these different games. I absolutely adore that also because you know PC gaming is not um, 
you know, the monolith it was once upon a time when everything is coming from Steam. You know, now you have the Epic Game Store as well. There's, you know, uh, good old games, GOG, that you that you know might use as a source for games as well. And so you can actually, instead of having to have all these different, you know, uh, places to look at your games, you can just go ahead and uh, install LaunchBox and then point them at your Steam collection, at your Epic Games collection, at your you know, good old games collection, and it'll sort and organize them all. And then when you're ready to play one, you go ahead and click on the game, you click launch, and lo and behold, it opens Steam or Epic Games or whatever other platform you are aiming at um, and and launches the game for you. Uh, What's also really cool about this um, is that it works on uh, Android devices as well. Now you can get an Android version of the game. Uh, the free version is limited to 100 games, but for a $10 fee, you can unlock the full features, um, which you can, by the way, then install on however many Android devices you want. There's no digital rights management attached to that full version. And so I've recently started organizing some Android games. I got a little uh, old uh, older model cell phone that I've acquired that I use sort of as a dedicated, um, you know, handheld gaming system. I also use it to uh, to stream, you know, games from my Xbox and my PlayStation 2. Um, and so having, you know, Launchbox on there to kind of organize my Android games is also really cool. So, you know, I'm all about video games and, and, and having them all in the right place and finding them quickly, especially when you have a large collection. And so I, I highly recommend Launchbox as uh, you know, sort of the go-to front end, and on top of that, for those of you who might be really out there and you guys like to uh, you know build your own arcade cabinets, um, Launchbox also has a mode called Big Box, which basically uh, imitates how an arcade would run, um, and is very very cool for launching various arcade games in a standalone arcade system. So just a whole lot of different features in this software. Uh, I've played around with it for several years now. Um, the Android version is probably the most recent one I played with, and it just reminded me once again how very, very good LaunchBox is. That's so interesting because like PC gaming um, has never been really something that I've dove into. I've always been interested, like peripherally um, speaking, but you know... That would really bring me back to some of those arcade games or, you know, previous console games that I really, really miss playing that really haven't been brought back up to speed. So I'm particularly missing out on these uh, Ninja Turtle games. It's been a, a good day and age since we've had a good Ninja Turtle game. So I've been waiting for that Kawabunga collection that's coming out next year forever. So this, this oh, and then the, And then, there. of course, there's... And then there's Shredder's Revenge, too, and yes. one in that style, which looks really good, man. Yeah, so I'm super stoked for that, but this is definitely something I'm tapping into. All right, so what are you nerd-commending this week, Chris? So I bought this book um, at um, our school's book fair last fall, and I put it on my bookshelf in my classroom, and I totally forgot about it until recently, and I had some downtime to really dive into it, but I'm nerd-commending Miles Morales' Shockwaves. It's written by Justin A. Reynolds, illustrated by Osner, uh, Eisner Award nominee uh, Pablo Leon, and it's just a really beautiful, you know, it is geared towards, um, you know, middle grade age group, you know, the, the age group for our students, but I, this is, you know, enjoyable for all ages, in my opinion, and you know, coming out of the massive success from Into the Spider-Verse and, and Miles Morales is really at the forefront of what Marvel is pushing for their characters. And I absolutely love that as 
as a truly fascinating legacy character and someone that I really, really enjoy following their story. And this is just this really cute little family story. Um, there's an earthquake that strikes Puerto Rico, um, where his mother is from. And so he wants to um, raise funds to help the re, uh, the relief efforts there. And then there are some nefarious, you know, inclusions there and just a really, a really good story for, um, you know, being proud of your heritage and, you know, being a young teenage superhero um, that, uh, you know, a lot of times can kind of go by the wayside with mainstream comics. So this is not something you have to worry about tying yourself up in canon. This is a really nice story um, beautifully illustrated, um, and really captures the same kind of energy that we saw in Into the Spider-Verse. Sweet, dude. Um, you, you say Into the Spider-Verse, and I'm already there. So I, I'm totally picking this up, man, and giving it a read. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of the Miles Morales character, so I'm, I'm all here for that. All right, that wraps up episode 99 of the Nerd by Word podcast. Next week will be 100, which is very, very hard to believe. We thank you so much for uh, coming along the ride uh, with us. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe via your favorite podcasting platform, whether that is Apple, Spotify, Amazon, TuneIn Radio, or nerdbyword.com. And find us, of course, on social media. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Nerd by Word or individually at that nerd Chris and at that nerd Dave. We want to hear from you. We want to interact with you. We want your suggestions for topics we should discuss. And feel free to sound off on everything we said in today's episode about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Did we get it right? Did we get it wrong? We want to hear from you. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.